The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Let me introduce myself. My name is Greg Gifford, and I will be teaching on education as being the beginning of knowledge. I like to put myself in context a little bit more because I feel like it helps you relate with me and some of the things that we're preparing to say. So just a few more details about myself, and then we'll kind of jump into this idea of finding our identity in education. I have the privilege of being a full-time professor so that I teach biblical counseling at the Master's University, if you've heard of it. Master's University is a Christian university located in Santa Clarita. And we've been teaching biblical counseling. This is our 28th year of teaching biblical counseling. Woohoo! <laughs> I think that's kind of neat. And I have the privilege of teaching the undergraduate students. So if you're doing a bachelor's degree in biblical counseling, then I'm your advisor or I'm one of your professors. And that's my uh, full-time gig. I get to be a part of events like this just because I'm a biblical counseling nerd. And occasionally they'll let me participate in these, these types. I was here last year with Curtis, actually. We were doing uh, the seminars on PTSD. So it's good to be back. So professor is kind of one dynamic of my life that's going to fit into a lot of what I try and talk us through here and what it means to really be embedded in academia and to see that education is valuable, but what are its limitations and then how do we balance pursuing education without wrapping our identity in our education. Personally, I have just finished my PhD last year. And that was something that was uh, near and dear to me and my family for a while. And I'll try and talk you through some of what that looks like, that even part of my vocation was contingent upon me finish, finishing my PhD, that that was written into my contract at master's, that I had to finish a PhD or at least demonstrate that I was working towards its completion. So education has been a big part of what I do. I teach naturally, so I am the educator, I'm the teacher, or I'm the professor. So when we talk through this idea of the beginning of knowledge, it's important for us to be able to situate that education does have a place, but that I hope in this session to be able to balance out what that place looks like and, and what it doesn't look like. Last details about myself, and then we'll jump into our notes here. I'm also a pastor of counseling at our church in Newhall. So what that means is that we have a small team of four people. I make the fifth person. And what we get to do is serve our church through the means of biblical counseling. So we have uh, two men and two women that will meet with those who are either members or regular attenders of our church. And I get to uh, work with all of them, oversee some of the counseling that they do. And that's a privilege because then when I'm not actually at master's teaching biblical counseling, then I'm getting to do biblical counseling in my local church. And I would just be really, um, I think, weird if I were just teaching biblical counseling and not counseling in some way. I just think that's an unhealthy dynamic at times. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity the Lord's put before me. And I think it's important for you to hear that, that I was counseling Monday night, Tuesday night, and then, uh, no, Wednesday night as well. And then we came down here Thursday. So it's, it's not just a thrill or some intellectual endeavor that I'm there with you, trying to minister on the front lines with you to my people. The name of the church. So the question is, what local church is it? And the name of the church is Faith Community Church. It's an evangelical free church there in Newhall, California. 
So that's, that's my life. Let's segue into some of our topic here. I want you to grab your Bible and I want you to turn with me to Acts 21. As you're turning there, we will, we will pick up in Acts 21 here in a few minutes, but let's try and frame some of our discussion. And then what I hope to do is jump into Acts 21 and explain to you some of what's taking place and how Paul uses his education. So by now, hopefully you're starting to get your arms around the idea of what is identity. How do we view ourselves? Uh, you have a bullet point underneath that question, what, it is, what is identity? I, I want you to just slowly um, you know, populate it with something along these lines. How are we viewing ourselves? Who are you? You could think of an ontology or or what a thing is or what a person is. That's what we're talking about as we talk about our identity, how you view yourself, who you are, what a thing is. So when we talk about identity and we talk about how identity connects to your education, what we're now trying to understand is what is the relationship of education and the way that education connects to your identity. By education, I'm not trying to overcomplicate it, just simply getting at the idea of those who are teachers, those who are actually doing the work of educating. They're seen as the specialists in a certain field, and then they're providing a knowledge about their field to their students. So in education, we have teachers and we have learners, we have students, whatever that looks like. But that specialist is the educator, professor, teacher, whatever, whatever level that is. So when we find how we view ourselves coupled with our education, we know that our identity has started, started to be wrapped up in what we know as it's being taught in a formal setting, like an educational setting. There is an importance in education, but we recognize that education is never provided as a valid means of identifying who you are or viewing yourself. I teach at a university. I get paid to teach people. That's a hard one. That's a real job killer if you think through what I'm saying here. That you can be right before the Lord. Your identity can be solid and have no formal education. So when we talk through the use of education, it's important for us to start up front by seeing that education has its place. I want to show that to you here from a story in Acts. And then I want to try and help you balance out finding our identity in our education. And then how do we pursue education in a way that represents our identity is not completely in our knowledge or even being an educator. But our identity is found in Christ being chosen by him, being adopted by him. Adopted by the Father. So go with me to Acts 21. Let's get a few context here. And you can just fill these bullet points in with whatever is standing out to you as I seek to offer to you this context. But the context is really important as we start to look at the way that Paul is arrested and how he utilizes his education. I want you to look in Acts 21. And we see that now Luke is documenting the progression that's taking place. Verse 7 Luke says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of seven, of the seven, excuse me, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt And he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. All right, so Paul, Paul knows that there is suffering that is potentially facing him as he makes his way toward Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 20 of Acts, you see that when he leaves the Ephesian elders on the coast of Miletus, that he says, why are you guys breaking my heart? I'm not only willing to go and suffer, but I'm willing to die for the sake of the gospel, still making his way toward Jerusalem. And Agabus has just confirmed, hey, when you go to Jerusalem, you will be mistreated by the Jews. So that's the backdrop as Paul continues to move forward. Skip just to the bottom of Acts 21. You see that now whenever he continues to make his way into Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And what takes place is that James now comes up with a plan to help demonstrate that Paul is actually on board with the Jews, that he's not seeking to harm the Jews. He's not denouncing Moses as he's being accused of but rather that he is is upholding the law and seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So he says in verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. Naturally, those rumors about Paul were creating problems with the Jews. So what they do is they come up with a plan. As you're going to Jerusalem, what we want you to do is we want you to go with these four other men who are under a Nazarite vow. We want you to purify yourself with them. We want you to actually even fund their going to Jerusalem and fund their ceremonial cleansing. And we want you to now go and place yourself under this vow to demonstrate that you're not against the Mosaic law. You're not against... um, the customs, that what's taking place is you're going to demonstrate that, no, you're for it, but you see the fulfillment as being different. Well, the plan didn't work, unfortunately. So the way that the story continues to unfold is that Paul goes, and in verse 27, it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. The plan didn't work. And what took place is he was accused of actually further uh, transgressing the law by bringing Gentiles into the temple. Now, that may not always uh, compute with us, but... As part of the temple, what would take place is that there was a certain point where if you were a Greek or you were a Gentile, you could not go any further into the temple. There's a court of the temples. You can Google that and see that some of what Herod's temple would have looked like would have had a court where the Greeks or the Gentiles had to have stopped. So now the four men that they were assuming Paul was with, they're now saying that Paul has further been sacrilegious and he's taken these four men and defiled. So there's an uprising that begins to start. And in that uprising... Uh, we see that there's a tribunal that comes and they sweep Paul away. And this is where we kind of get to our text. Look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? Okay, now in English, we just see English, English. But you see their surprise here at the end of verse 37. 
And this is the way that the tribune responded. Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. That's a pretty significant thing that had just taken place. Okay, obviously he's been accused in a couple of wrong ways so far. But now when the tribunal begins to remove him from this rioting crowd, he says to them in their language, hey, can we chat? Can I say something to you? All right, we know that in that capacity, we see Paul flexing a little bit of his educational muscles. I'm at point B in your notes. It says multilingual engagement. That Paul busts out some Greek here. And he engages the tribunal in their mother tongue. Paul used his skill in the languages to further the gospel by addressing the Greek tribunal. Well, that's pretty noteworthy. So they're surprised by that. That probably creates a little bit of questions in their own mind because they're recognizing that he's probably not the Egyptian who stirred the stink. That's probably not the same person. That This, is, this must be someone different. But Paul very wisely says... May I say something to you? And then begins to address them. But now what he does is he, he asks something of them. So if you've been to the Temple Mount where this scene would have been unfolding, you recognize that Paul was whisked away. And at the back of the Temple Mount, modern day, there's this little boy's home. You go back to it's, it's like the southeast corner. And you can see that there are little boys that can even look from little peepholes, windows, overlooking Temple Mount. You see the big dome of the rock there. Paul's whisked away. He's brought up to this tribunal. He's probably 15, 20 feet up above the crowds that are still mobbing and rioting below him. And he asks the Greek tribunal, can I talk to them? Can I speak with them? And verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. All right, we have educated Paul here flexing one more muscle. So far, he's demonstrated that he's competent in the language of the Greeks, that he can speak that language. He's addressed the tribunal in Greek. And then now as he's standing on these steps overlooking Temple Mount, he, he begins to address them in Hebrew. So all we see is verse 1, English. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I'll now, I now make before you. But what Paul was doing is he was addressing them in the tongue that they had known. And verse 2 says that when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. That's a pretty significant thing here. Sometimes if we just glance through this passage, we miss out on exactly what it is that Paul's seeking to demonstrate. I know Greek... Can I have a second to talk with you guys? And he addresses them in Greek. He knows Hebrew. So now he has to be able to speak to the crowd in their own tongue. When he uses that language of Hebrew, what takes place is that the Hebrew people, the Jews, they recognize their language and they, they kind of pipe up to listen to what he's preparing to say. And then he starts to preach through a sermon. He doesn't get all the way through the sermon before he manages to tick them off again. <laughs> and then the mob continues to revolt against him. But what's interesting is that Paul even highlights his education in the way that he addresses the Hebrews. So, so far, it, Paul hasn't shied away. I, I don't think he's flaunting his education or his knowledge. 
He's utilizing it to continue to advance the gospel. But let's just look at the beginning of his sermon here. I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This way is a reference to believers. That's why you have it capitalized here. Persecuted Christians, verse 5. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul starts by talking about his own zealousness for the law, identifying with those to whom he's speaking. And in that, he drops a name that might be unfamiliar to you, but he drops Gamaliel's name. You see that here in verse 3. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Turn over to Acts 5 with me. Okay, when Paul says this, sometimes we just hear like, oh, great, Gamaliel. Who is that? Is that a Lord of the Rings character? When Paul said that name to the Jews, what would have taken place is there would have been an astonishment that you learn from Gamaliel himself. That's kind of like our modern equivalence of saying like, hey, no, I went to Harvard. Hey, no, I went to Princeton. Like you think of that Ivy League school that you revere. I went to Masters. Anyone? No? <laughs> I got a witness back there. Curtis, give me an amen. That's what, that's what they would have heard. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That's a very significant statement. Let's just pause and explain a little bit of who Gamaliel was and why this statement would have been meaningful. I want you to look at Acts chapter 5, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And then he goes on and he illustrates what what happened again. There was another man named Judas. So verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And then look at what the text says at the end of verse 39. So they took his advice. They let the apostles go. Gamaliel was a very influential figure within the Jewish nation, a leader of the Sanhedrin. You see here a couple of quotes in your notes. A first century teacher of the law of Moses, under whom Paul studied. He was part of the school of Hillel and a member of the Sanhedrin. So we see just from a small case study in Acts 5, that what took place is Gamaliel said, hey, if you guys persecute these men, there's two dangers here. That A, you could actually spread this, but that worst of all, you could be found to be opposing something that God's doing. And the Sanhedrin listened to him. 
Paul essentially tells the Hebrew mob back in Acts 22 that he has been educated by the best. You okay with that? Is that haughty of him? He just dropped Gamaliel's name. Is there a precociousness here? Like, hey, how dare you drop that you've been educated by Gamaliel? How, how selfish. Like, how, that's just like a really rude thing for you to say in this moment. But what Paul is seeking to do is he's seeking to leverage his education toward the advancement of the gospel. He's spoken in Greek to the tribune. He's addressed the crowd in Hebrew. And one of the opening statements with the crowd is that he says, I've studied under the best of the best. I've studied under Gamaliel. The crowd would have been impressed by that. Oh, sweet. But even though Paul was using his education to leverage toward the gospel, he was not suggesting his education to be compromising or not compromising, excuse me, comprising his identity. He was not suggesting that his education is who he was. That's a big difference in the way that we see Paul use his education, is that Paul was willing to flex his education for the sake of opening doors for the gospel, but that in no way was he trying to communicate that he is about his education or that his education is what comprises his being, his identity, who he is. So whenever we see our identification with our education, we have to be able to at least take a few cues from Paul and the way that he utilized his education. I want to note just a few things here. When we talk about Paul's work and how that connects to our own life, let me provide you a few personal anecdotes and then jump into professional considerations for those of us who might be educators, professors, teachers of students in some capacity. When I signed my contract to become a professor at Masters, I understood that that meant that I had to continue to pursue a terminal degree or that I had to complete my terminal degree, that I was given X amount of time to finish that project. So I know that my tendency can be to see myself as a success or a failure based off the completion of a terminal degree. If you don't finish your terminal degree, maybe your contract is not renewed. Very straightforward. Like, how do, you, how do you balance that process here? What's that look like? I teach bachelor's level students who are also pursuing degrees. My job is to help teach them so that they can earn credit, and that credit goes towards an overall bachelor's degree in which they use that to go and pursue their vocations. Furthermore, I work in an environment where teaching and publishing and practicing is revered and also required if you want to continue to advance in the levels of being a professor, associate, assistant, full. So it's funny because you recognize that those vocational requirements can very much be imbibed as now how we're viewing our own personal validity, like our own personal worth our own success. Did we or did we not accomplish those things? Did we get that next degree? Did we accomplish that next certification? I think you can find yourself in this somewhere too. When you finished that degree that you saw yourself as now going to be more qualified, more capable, perhaps more competent, and what takes place is when you finish that degree, you realize that not a whole lot really changes. You're still who you are. That's what I love about my church is they could care less about my education. <laughs> Greg is Greg. Like, what does it matter? Oh, great. You did another class. How wonderful. So 
Now, when you think of professional considerations, I am not arguing in some way that we cast off education because some of us actually are required to pursue education as part of our career. Continuing education credits, some of us are having to do with whatever that looks like. Some of us are having to pursue education because we are educators. And so in order for us to be an educator of someone else, we have to specialize. Well, we recognize that even though I may have vocational requirements to pursue education, that that education doesn't comprise or confirm my identity in Christ. It doesn't. I don't have to be educated to be fully adopted, fully called, fully chosen by the Lord. In fact, the opposite could be true. I could be highly educated and not be in the family of God and still have great problems. So it's not to cast off education. What I would offer is that we're leveraging our education, leveraging it. We're leveraging education versus identifying in our education. Hear me out on this, and this is where I'm going to try and take us the remainder of our time together. You see that leveraging education is really what Paul was about. Paul was a highly educated man. Some actually, if you do the timeline, some actually think that the 14 years in between road to Damascus, him meeting the disciples, that he was studying further, studying more. You read the first part of Galatians, where it seems like he goes and withdraws himself and continues to invest in his education. Paul did not identify himself as his education, but on a regular basis was willing to use his education to advance the gospel. I'm offering that as a way to which we view our own education, that some of us should be formally educated and pursue that as a means of leveraging towards the advancement of the gospel. You know what's interesting? As I worked at a counseling center in Charleston, South Carolina, called Low Country Biblical Counseling Center. This is the way my boss put it. I always appreciated this. He said, Greg, for some reason, when you get a master's degree and you have a counseling center, people just think you're an expert. They just think you're an expert in the matter. When I would, I would say the exact same thing from the Bible and not have a master's degree, and people didn't see me as being credible. But in pursuing a master's degree and now being a director of a counseling center, that what he was saying is that I am seen as an expert just because I have those things. Whether he's an expert or not is now the next question. I would consider him to be proficient, but he was making a point. And it's that you can bring credibility just to the conversation by the education that you possess. That's the idea of leveraging your education for the advancement of the gospel You may have zero formal education and say the exact same thing, but there's going to be a difference in credibility in what people are hearing you say. That's what Tim was getting at. He was getting at that idea of being willing to leverage your education for the good of those that you're counseling. Whereas when we identify with our education, what's taking place is we're not utilizing education. We're not leveraging it. Education is becoming who we are, how we view ourselves, how we measure our success, how we measure our own being. So what my suggestion is, is that we're seeing education as not something that we cast off, not something that we forego, not something that we revolt against, but something that we leverage towards the use of the advancement for the gospel, not as a means of identifying our own worth. So let me try and offer to you just a few questions to help consider how do I know that my education is becoming a part of my identity. Think through these with me. And I'm hoping that you'll keep some of these 
and use them in your own counseling and ministry contexts. Does my education make me more self-confident? Think of that. Being educated, does that make you feel like you are more confident in yourself because you've completed that degree? Well, I finished my bachelor's. I finished my master's degree. I finished my doctoral degree, whatever that is. Now I can have confidence in who I am. Okay, now there is a sense in which those things you can be proud of, but does that mean that you should have greater confidence in the flesh based off of your own education? That's a question that I would offer for you. Keep going with me. Does my education give me hope? Because of my education, everything's going to be okay. I work with bachelor's degree students. <laughs> you know, it's funny. As I'm like, hey guys, you know the same person you are as a senior is going to be the same person you are when you graduate. If you're lazy now, shocker of the year. When you cross the stage, you're still going to be a lazy person. You recognize that for many of us, our education is our hope for a brighter future. I even hear commercials for colleges advertising themselves of unlock your career potentials. Is your education your hope? The reason why you have hope about the future is based off of the completion of your formal education, your degrees. Well, then maybe I know that education has become too much a part of my identity. Keep going with me. Does my education embolden me in social context? Or to say that conversely, when you're in a room full of formally educated people that you feel perhaps lesser than, or that you don't feel like you're adequate, or you feel in some way stupid or Neanderthal-esque, does your education embolden you and give you confidence in those social contexts? Or if you don't have it and you're in those contexts, do you feel less qualified, less uh, able to speak into those situations? Next question. Do I feel lesser than because I have less education? Um, This is just as you're thinking through. You can think back to junior high when you thought, man, like, I'm really nervous about going into high school, but when I'm done with high school, I will have arrived, things will be good, I will be the boss again, and then you get to your junior, senior year of high school, and then what happens is you realize, oh no, it doesn't matter, I have to go back out into the workforce, and then you go into college, and then you're freshman again, and that process just keeps starting over at each point of the way. You go into a master's degree, your first year graduate student, whatever that looks like, That process just keeps duplicating because if we're not cautious, then we're finding our confidence, we're finding our value, our identity in our education. Thus, in not having a formal education, we feel lesser, we feel like we're lesser competent because of that lack of formal education. All right, keep going with me. Do I connect my education to my spiritual giftedness or spiritual qualifications? This is a big one within churches. Does an elder have to have formal theological training? Right? It just depends on what church you're at. This is the way that our church lands on that issue. That we prefer to have a mix of those who have both. Now, we're in the backyard of a seminary and a Christian university. So for us, there is a bit more uh, difficulty in, in seeing, hey, we don't want those who are teaching Sunday school to feel like they have to have a Ph.D., to be in Sunday school. So what's always interesting is that we have seminary professors 
who are learning from lay elders, and the lay elders are teachers who have never been formally educated in the Word, teaching our seminary professors. I love it. We had, we had one of those guys, he's an animist or animator, I think. Is, animist is people who eat animals. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he does that. Um, he's an animator, so he draws for Warner Brothers, and uh, he taught for us on Father's Day. And as I was looking around, we had two or three professors from the seminary that were present. And this elder had no formal theological training. That's how we're trying to thread that needle, because what we're saying is that your spiritual giftedness doesn't equate to formal education. And you may have no formal theological training and be very gifted in this area. I think Charles Spurgeon is a great example of that, for those of you who know Spurgeon. like He, he was never formally educated in theology, but he was obviously very gifted in theology and preaching and in teaching. Last question is, do I see education as what would bring completeness to my life? It's that last thing. If I just finished it, then I would feel satisfied that I hadn't left anything undone. Maybe some of that goes back into vocational preparation. Maybe some of that goes back into your own bucket list, things that you wanted to accomplish. So what I'm suggesting by these is not that if just one of these triggers a yes, that you have found your identity, but if you can answer yes to multiple forms of these, that maybe your education has become too much, or maybe that now you're identifying yourself in a way that God would not identify you. That's not what we're suggesting when we talk about using your education to leverage for the advancement of the gospel. That's not it. It's rather saying when you pursue education, be willing to be good at it, to be proficient in it, to be highly educated but that is for a means of advancing the gospel, not yourself. So then I pose the question, how does Paul balance his education? Let's go to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. I appreciate the fact that Paul can go there. If you want to talk about being educated, all right, let's do it. I'll go there with you. This is in Philippians 3. Let's start in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. It's important. We're not putting confidence in our accomplishments. We're not putting confidence in the keeping of the Mosaic Law. We're not putting confidence in the fact that we are of the circumcision. Verse 4 though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If you want to play that game, if you want to talk about resumes, you want to talk about zealousness for the law, let's talk about those. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Okay, so pause with me for a second. I can appreciate some of what Paul's doing because he's saying, hey, if, if we wanted to compare ourselves in regard to one's resume, their CV, their experiences, he's saying, I can go there with you. 
And I have some pretty noteworthy accomplishments in my life, some by birth, some by his own deeds. But he contrasts at the end that the value that he places is not in what he inherited in his birth. It's not in his citizenship. It's not in his zealousness for the law. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. That all of those things he considers as being rubbish, not because they're invaluable in and of themselves or being a Jew is invaluable or education is invaluable. No, but they're rubbish in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. When Paul thinks of his education, he sees that it's not even on the same scale as knowing Christ Jesus. It's not even it's not even a comparison. When I talk about what he really values, we see that Paul views his education as being rubbish or that he's willing to lose those things that one could put confidence in the flesh about. His education is not where he found his identity. You hear that? But he was a really competent dude. He was a really highly educated. Like he had some things that potentially he could boast in. And he says that all of those things I'm considering as rubbish in light of the value of knowing Jesus Christ. So I'd say, how does Paul balance his view of education? Well, he doesn't just scrap those things. But what he says is that in comparison to knowing Christ and being found in him, fellowshipping with Christ's sufferings, that is of supreme and ultimate value, no matter the, the sweet, nice, earthly accomplishment that you can follow through on. So let me try and offer us some practical strategies to finding our identities in Christ and not in our education. All right, so start with me here. This is point A. First of all, leverage education, but do not love education. Is that a weird thing to say? A little weird. Thank you for being honest. Leverage education, but do not love education. You love God. You love Christ. As I get to my next point, I'll try and suggest that those are just means of knowing God more. Your education is for the advancement of the gospel. It's weird to me, the students that we have around campus that just love to learn and they don't like to go practice in any way. They're the ones that are staying after class. Hey, what do you think about this? I'm like. I don't know. I don't think about that stuff. You guys are smarter than I am. <laughs> those, those are weird to me when we're not letting our education in some way propel the gospel, fuel our love for Christ, but education becomes an end in itself to where now we enjoy learning more than we enjoy loving Christ. So then what takes place is those students linger around, they get another degree, they get another degree, and then they become professors. And then they come teach at IBCD. I'm sorry. No, that's it. Ha! Get me out of here. No. Um, just, just balancing that idea of, no, it's, it's about leveraging education, not loving it. So last anecdote on this, and then we'll go to the next point. I'll never forget, we were doing a, a Bible panel discussion. And what would take place is um, the moderator would go, and he was one of our colleagues. His name is Abner Chow. And he would say, okay, I want you just to give one bit of wisdom to each of the students that are present and it got to one of our tenured professors, and they said, okay, what's your bit of wisdom? What would you offer to the students? You know, if you could only say one thing, what is it that you would say? His name was Greg Beely, or is Greg Beely. 
And what he said is that you need to get out into ministry. You need to get out and you need to get some experience. You need to get out and you need to practice. And he was trying to emphasize this point of your education is right, but you need to go tease that out in the real world and let the real world temper you a little bit with what it means to actually practice what you've learned here in the real world. And I appreciated that and his advice, that it's not about education. It's leveraging that education. So we're loving Christ. All right, point B. Have you considered this, that education is a means of worship, not a means of confirming your identity in Christ? It is a means of worship that the more that you pursue knowledge and the more that you pursue a specialty, some of it may be your own vocation, that those are means of glorifying God more, knowing Him more, reflecting Him more, and those are not simply about your own vocation, your own identity, your own pay scale. Education is a means of offering worship to God. So imagine this with me, that do I think that you can worship God better or you can worship Him effectively by having a better understanding of Him or a clearer understanding or a broader understanding of Him? Yes, I do think that that fuels your worship. When you know more about the Word, you know more about God the Father, about His Son. But recognize that when my education begins to tug at my worship, that maybe I should stop pursuing it. Let me explain that statement. When my education tugs at my knowledge of God or at my worship, maybe I should stop pursuing it. I'm convinced that the PhD was pushing me toward really unhealthy ways of thinking. For those of you who are familiar with a researcher's mind, they have to ask questions about everything. Everything. It's like you have to be five years old again. Why? Who says that? Why would you think that way? So what begins to take place in that process is that you're asking questions of like, well, who said that? Why do you think that way? Well, who agrees with them? And then you go to the Bible. Ha! Ah, what a dangerous place to go and to start to say, well, who said that? Well, why? Well, why should I believe that? Who agrees with that? So what takes place is that oftentimes higher education ruins a person's spiritual walk, not because higher education is dangerous, but because human reasoning is dangerous. Ah, go back to the enlightenment. See what happens whenever we exalt human reasoning. Well, we see a whole wake come in of a lack of commitment to the word of God as being true. And as soon as that enters in, then we have naturalism, we have materialism, we have all of the different threads of knowledge that we're living in right now. Well, that's what happens when we exalt our human capacities. I would argue that if you're in the middle of an educational program that's tugging at your worship, maybe you need to bail. Maybe you need to get out of there. Maybe you need to transfer to master's. Huh? Is, it, is it that obvious? that? I, all right, point C. Sorry. Pretty shameless with this stuff. Pursue education for better equipping and glorifying God, especially in the liberal arts. Now imagine that sometimes we think that education can just run concurrent. That maybe if I'm going to go study mathematics, maybe if I'm going to go study literature, that those things are running concurrent with my equipping to serve the Lord. But you recognize that, that God is just as much honored in your pursuit of studying literature 
as it is in studying his word, that one is not inherently more sacred than other if you're doing it in a worshipful capacity, if you're doing it in a means of seeking to be better equipped to glorify the Lord. So when we think of that, it's now that there is nothing that's entirely secular in our education, that I can pursue engineering as a way of being equipped to better glorify the Lord, something that may seemingly be disconnected from God's word, that I can pursue a practice of nursing to the glory of the Lord and being better equipped to glorify God. So my education isn't running concurrent with my desire to be better equipped. It's one and the same. That I want to be better equipped to glorify God and in growing in my knowledge of this specific skill, that's a means of me understanding God more. That's what I'm trying to argue for with this, that it shouldn't be either or, that it's both and. I'm pursuing education and I'm pursuing that concurrently. I'm, I'm letting that be a means of equipping me to better glorify the Lord. All right, let's keep going. Next one. I use repent. All right, this is kind of strong. As I was reading back through my notes, I was like, all right, like, I don't want to sound too in your face with this, but let me read the statement and then I'll back up a little bit. Repent of believing educated corresponds to degrees. All right, maybe I should say turn away from or change your mind about. (laughs) When we talk about an educated person, we recognize that schooling doesn't always equate to being educated. Okay? I tell students all the time, there are men and women at Harvard that know the original languages of Scripture better than you, and I, you or I do. You okay with that? They know Koine Greek better than you, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Ah, that's a problem. So when we talk about education, we have to be able to bifurcate the two and say that just because a person holds multiple degrees doesn't necessarily mean that they are educated in the truest sense of the word. Because this is where I want you to go with me in Proverbs 1. Because if your knowledge is not promoting fear of the Lord, then maybe it's not promoting you being an educated person. Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, this was the title of this breakout session. Verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you're a Francis Schaeffer fan, and you should be if you're not, uh, he was very much writing in the context of a shifting commitment to knowledge. Some of the things that he said is that what you believe about knowledge changes everything. Well, he wrote a book called The God Who Is There. And in the illustration of The God Who Is There, Francis Schaeffer was trying to say that when when you follow truth back to its source, God will be there behind truth. You follow truth back. And so what was being taught at uh, Labrie is that Uh, One of the presenters were using slides and removing the slides and then asking the question of what would be there behind the slide of truth. And that's when Francis Schaeffer came up with this idea to write his book that God is the God who is there behind truth. When we talk about knowledge, we're saying that, that knowledge and truth, those begin with God. Those begin with God. So my education is a means of informing me about God you find that your education is not in competition. It shouldn't be in competition 
with your fear of the Lord. It should be complementing your fear of the Lord, enlarging your fear of the Lord. So if I believe in, in some degree that my education is tugging at my own fear of the Lord, I need to really evaluate that. That's what I'm saying here above, that I really need to evaluate if I should continue in this education. Because knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. All right, let me give you this final point. And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to pause for a few minutes and, and talk through any questions. Uh, point F says, finally, as an act of worship, only volunteer your education as a means of advancing the gospel, not your own accomplishments. Hear me out on that. This is what Paul did. Did you note that? That when it became pertinent, he used Greek. And he said, hey, tribunal, can I speak with you guys in Greek? And then can I talk to the crowd over here in Hebrew? And as he talked to the crowd in Hebrew, he said, oh, by the way, I went to Harvard, studied under Gamaliel. And what he does is he volunteers those things for the sake of the gospel. And I'm saying, hey, maybe we should consider the same thing. I'm a younger man. I get that. I'm at least self-aware enough to know that. And some of the things that I wrestle with in my own life is, man, it just feels really self-promoting to say, PhD, doctor, blah, blah, blah. What takes place, though, is that there are times when that gives a younger man a credibility to be able to say, hey, he's earned a PhD or he's earned a terminal degree. I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like when when is, when is right and when is wrong. I've... Uh, as I walk through that with you guys, I'm saying, hey, maybe, maybe what we do is that we pursue those things and we're willing to use those things if they advance the gospel, but we're unwilling to use those things if they advance our own accomplishments. Let me give you an example of that. In my local church, I'm very leery of the person that comes and is very interested in formal and higher education. I'm very leery of that person that wants to come and know about my dissertation and my thesis, wants to know about the theological classes that I've taken. I'm very leery of them because those things are not what makes us brother and sister. Those things are not what make me spiritually qualified to be in my church. In that context, I'm leery to have conversations about higher education if that in some way is going to make me more qualified to be a pastor or an elder very leery of those types of people. Typically it's my students or typically it's a seminarian who's there and they're visiting. I'm leery of those folks. And in that sense, I'm not going to tell you and I'm not going to talk about those things with you. I'm not going to talk about my theological education. I'm not going to try and establish a credibility with you in that because that's not what makes us spiritually qualified. And if you think that's going to make me spiritually qualified, then we're going to, we're going to be starting our relationship wrong. That's not going to work here in the local church. So in that context, I will not talk about my formal education. I'm not going to talk to you about my dissertation. I'm not going to talk to you about my theological classes because I don't want to in some way insinuate that those are what makes me spiritually qualified. They're not what makes me spiritually qualified. So when we think about our education, it's that you're willing to volunteer those things when it advances the gospel, not yourself. And I'm in there, like I'm right there with you trying to figure out what that looks like and how we do that and not bring glory to ourselves but bring glory to God in that process. Paul did it. Paul was willing to show that he was educated, but then he did not do it in a way to promote his own glory, but did it as a means of advancing the gospel. So we have about five minutes left, actually. Which is that's not, that's relatively good timing, folks. 
Does that bring any questions to you guys? And what I'm, I'm going to repeat you, not for the sake of my own hearing, but so the recording picks up your questions. But what questions or thoughts does that bring to your mind? What do you guys say? Yes, sir. Actually, I'm kind of, kind of facing. So in life, you know, you talk about you want these things to complement each other. But the reality is, okay, I've got so many hours a week that I can work and on things. Should I be pursuing my ACBC certification or should I be working in counseling work? Okay, yeah, good. So the question is, uh, you know, with the tension of limitation of resources and time, should we be in the trenches counseling or should we be pursuing ACBC certification in that process? Or you could sub in IBCD, you could sub in other biblical investments. I would argue that, uh, this sounds so Switzerland-esque, all right, but let me explain myself, (laughs) that your investment in your training is going to benefit your counseling so if you're only investing in counseling, that's good now, but long-term that can be detrimental if you're not growing as a counselor and you're not growing in your own theological knowledge and you're not growing in your understanding of the text. So you could spend every waking moment of every day meeting with people, counseling and pouring out, but if you're not growing in knowledge of the Word, if you yourself are not being enriched, then what's going to take place is maybe two years, maybe three years, you're going to be reusing and repackaging and saying the same thing and maybe even saying it to people to where it doesn't fit. And you're going to be running out of information to be able to share. So I would argue that what makes you effective is that you're getting some type of maybe even a 25% study and training and taking a class here and there, and then 75% involvement in ministry or counseling ministry particularly. So no, maybe ACBC doesn't get it all, but they get a little bit for the sake of your own counseling excellence. Because what takes place, this is true as a professor, by the way, I could just teach all the time and I could just meet with students all the time. But if I'm not growing personally, then come three years from now, I'm teaching the same thing when that's no longer pertinent or I'm not growing in awareness of other passages of Scripture. And so in order to be a better professor, I too have to be growing to benefit my students. Similar concept. So that's, that's kind of my answer is that maybe you're going to have to taper it down, but I would say you still need to be investing in your own training while applying it in ministry contexts. Good question. All right, others. Yes, sir. Could you kind of flesh out that idea between kind of secular and sacred that you were talking about? Yeah, good. Because I have a a degree in engineering. And so, like, how would someone pursue, you know, a degree of engineering for the glory of God? Good. I would say that. Yeah, let's, I mean, so think through that with me. Isaac Newton, you know, like the granddaddy of mathematics is was committed to God and committed to a biblical worldview and pursued order in the universe because he understood God was a God of order. And even in the pursuit of some of his discoveries, it was a commitment to a Christian worldview, to a biblical worldview. So as an engineer, we're saying that, all right, maybe the connection doesn't seem as immediately direct, but you think of some of the laws of mathematics that you're repeatedly applying in order. Those reflect back God. Corinthians tells us that God is a God of order. Or you think of maybe even the, the ministry opportunities that are unlocked for an engineer, that they can now work 40 hours and minister bivocationally in their church. And that's like their tent-making skill. When I think of the formal pursuit of engineering, we're saying that, hey, maybe that's a bit more difficult because I'm not memorizing Scripture and being tested over it. But I'm doing this according to Romans 11.36, that this is from the Lord, this is to the Lord for His glory. So that even engineering, especially engineering or the sciences, 
You think of all the stems, the different degrees and careers you can pursue. Those are from the Lord. He's given us the ability to study these things. I'm going to study these through the ability that he's given to me. I'm going to be a faithful, good steward. And then finally, I'm going to reflect back praise and glory to him for allowing me to accomplish these things. When I finish my, it's not the MCAT, it's AutoCAD. When I finish my sweet daddy AutoCAD drawing, and I think, man, that was a lot of work, and that's now going to turn into a building or into an HVAC system somewhere. Well, Lord, you get glory for that because you've given me the faculties to be able to do those things. So if I was able to do anything successfully, that's to your glory, not my own. And I would just say that Romans 11.36 kind of provides a little bit of a model on how you glorify the Lord in, in engineering, for instance. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, good. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, you know, how do you how do you best kind of love your son and shepherd him as he is maybe bent or inclined towards education and has been pursuing a high quality of education since he was young? Uh, is that right? Is, is that a fair summary? So I would. This sounds so rude to begin with, but um, I've told students this before. <laughs> you know, the the best thing that could happen to you would be for you to fail a class. Right? Like, oh, mom and dad will be happy if you fail. That <laughs> um, maybe that exhibits that other parts of your life are in right order because you were willing to let that go and that class failed and as a result of that. Well, first of all, you have to articulate a few things. There's giftedness that comes into that. That all of our students are different. I have two sons of my own. One's prone to be a thinker. One's a bit more introspective and self-aware. The other just kind of is like rough and tumble, ready to go. He's our fighter. A um, little bit more easygoing, but uh, not as much of uh, intellectual in that sense. So you have giftedness, and your son has that giftedness, which thrives in certain contexts, like education. And it probably isn't as beneficial in other places to where it's more of like, hey, you just need to do it and not think about it. Just you know, move, take action. So I would say that you're helping shepherd giftedness, you're helping cultivate giftedness, you're helping find places where that giftedness would thrive to its best ability. That there's nothing wrong with expressing that giftedness. We would do this all the time with uh, musicians, that we're trying to find a place where their giftedness is best expressed, and that's true of your son, that you're trying to find that, but that you're also pointing him back to grounding his identity in Christ, and you're pointing him back to I would just say um, implementation or some of the real world. Anytime I'm around a highly intellectual student, oftentimes they just want to talk about like these ethereal ideas and, and it's hard to get them to be of a functional immediate value. Like, hey man, go get a job and quit talking about Aristotle for a second. 
And in that sense, it's like, hey, you're cultivating giftedness. You're going to try and direct him towards. But you also have to call him to be good steward now, like a practitioner, an implementer of what he knows. And the guy I'm thinking of in particular, it, he just really struggled to make social relationships. He really struggled to uh, maintain a job. He was immature in some of those other ways, even though he was extremely brilliant. And so we had to try and push him towards independence, push him towards a job, push him towards not overthinking everything and being willing to put a lid on it at certain points to where he's, he's able to accept the unknown. Because what happens for the intellectual is it blurs from curiosity into pride. It really does. It goes from, well, what about to I know better or that can't be true because I, I don't think it can be true. So it's, it's shepherding giftedness and prompting towards practicality or implementation. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.